So let me invite you to turn to Psalm 88. Psalm 88. Now, I must have read this 20 times in my life, but uh, until I decided to preach on it, I perhaps didn't look at it carefully enough. And uh, I don't know if you're going to be as surprised as I was with regard to the trajectory of this psalm, but it is uh, unique in that, and I think you'll see why. Psalm 88, if you want to follow along in your pew Bibles, is found on page 925. That's where it begins. Otherwise, the words will be on the screens as well. Psalm 88, verse 1 begins, O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of trouble and my life draws near the grave. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so some of you know this. Others maybe don't pay that close of attention. Um, but I am terrible at coming up with titles for sermons. Terrible. But luckily, I had a great title that I could steal from somebody else tonight. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Do you know the reference? Okay, most of you do. The reference is from Simon and Garfunkel's song, Sounds of Silence. And when I finished reading that psalm last week, I was, that was really all I could think of. So I had to get a plug in, and I wondered with Kevin yesterday morning, I thought, you know, I know that Paul, Simon, and Art Garfunkel were Jews, probably raised in that tradition. They were probably very familiar with all of the psalms, and uh, I kind of just wondered if that is where Paul Simon grabbed that first line of song, Sounds of Silence. Um, but enough about that. It really has no bearing on um, 
what we just read, other than to say, isn't that one of the saddest, most hopeless psalms that you've ever read? I don't know that there's a sadder psalm in the entire 150-chapter book of psalms. I mean, there's other places in the psalms where the author of a given psalm will be in a pretty dark place, pretty low place, and there's some very picturesque, very powerful language to describe how low people can get. But the trajectory of most psalms of lament, which is what we call them, is that the psalmist brings to the Lord a problem, and then by the end of the psalm, sometimes by just considering the character of God, and sometimes by considering the works of salvation and redemption that God has done in the past, by the end of the psalm, even though the psalmist's given trouble in writing that psalm or problem that he's writing about, even though that doesn't go away, at least his perspective has changed, right? Right? That's how most psalms go. That's the trajectory of most psalms. By the end of a psalm, you expect to get at least some spark of hope, some word of grace. But in Psalm 88, it just, it just never comes. That's the first thing I want to point out tonight. As Christians face troubles in this world, deep troubles, Troubles that last, troubles that persist, troubles that never completely go away. There have historically been a number of explanations put forth to kind of give explanation, to, to give resolution to this suffering that, that just kind of perpetuates and never seems to go away. Now, not all of us have experienced that, but I know that some of us have. Some of us have been given a leg up in life. Some of us have been given a serious leg down in life. And it's a leg down that, that's not going to go away. Something that has to be dealt with every single day. And so what kind of a song is a believer struggling with that going to sing? Anyway, as I mentioned, there have been a number of explanations historically that... Uh, that have been put forth to uh, kind of explain this and to bring some resolution to, uh, let's face it, the way things are in a fallen world. Some have claimed that trouble and, and pain and sufferings are, are really nothing more than an illusion. And if we could just uh, open our eyes to reality, we would realize that there's actually no such thing as, as suffering and pain and trouble. And this is actually philosophically an, an Eastern idea. And we get this notion from different forms of Hinduism and Buddhism, these, these religions that teach detachments, not, not engagement, not being in the world, but not of the world, but, but complete detachment from the world. And in these worldviews, we are told that if we are just able to get to that higher level of enlightenment, all the suffering that we're experiencing now will just, will just go away because it just it doesn't matter. Our bodies don't matter. Suffering that our bodies feel doesn't matter. But, you know, that doesn't really make any sense in a Christian worldview. And so that's, that is something, that's an idea that we can discard immediately. Because we know 
we know that there is such a thing as sin and rebellion against God. We know that our first parents, Adam and Eve, kind of, kind of blew it for everyone who would come after. Sin entered the world, and, and we've got to deal with it now. We also know that there are consequences to sin, and it is sin which brings with it the misery that we experience in different measures throughout life. And let's face it, misery is not an illusion. Misery, for those of us who have truly experienced it, is uh, very real. So that's one point of view. Other well-meaning people have put forth the idea that if you just had enough faith, if you just had a little bit more faith, then your troubles would go away. In this perspective, the, the real problem that all of us who are suffering face is that we're just not trusting the Lord enough. That's actually what health and wealth churches teach, right? That if we just had enough faith, then everything would work itself out in this life. Everything would be all right. We'll get everything that we want. We'll live our best life. Now, of course, it's always good advice to say trust in God. I'm not arguing that. That's never a bad idea. The paradoxical problem is that more faith does not necessarily mean less problems. In fact, the reverse is usually the case. So it's important for us to be patient with ourselves And patient with our brothers and sisters in Christ who struggle with this, struggle to live out a strong faith even through deep and unrelenting trials. And by the way, that is um, one of the good lessons we learned from this psalm. Patience with brothers and sisters who know that they need to be trusting in God and resting in God, but it's extremely difficult for them at this place in their lives and this trial that they're enduring. They know that trust in God is where they should be, but they're having a hard time getting there because of the depth and seriousness of their circumstances. Well... Sometimes as we face these kinds of troubles, and the perspective I just mentioned is uh, one that's, um, I guess, more geared toward Christian circles and and what you would get from well-meaning people in the church. But sometimes as we face troubles, the, the world has some advice to give as well. Like our culture, at least parts of it might tell us that This teaches us, this kind of perpetual struggle, this perpetual trial type of situation, teaches us that there really aren't any answers, right? And so the answer is to realize that there are no answers. That is kind of unique to our culture and our world right now because it is a world that kind of resists the notion of absolute truth. You know, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And and really that means that there are no answers absolutely to be given. And so to realize that is somewhat liberating. I don't know that it gives me any comfort. I hope it doesn't give you any comfort either. And that is absolutely not the message of this psalm. Because even in this psalm that that ends in such a bleak way, the darkness is my closest friend, there are, in fact, some answers. 
if we're willing to do the work. They may not be all of the answers that the Bible gives us, but we will include some of those in the sermon as well because Scripture interprets Scripture. But even in this psalm, there are some important answers to be gained. As I mentioned, this psalm is dark. As I also mentioned, what else can miserable Christians sing? I mean, what do you sing when you are in this slimy pit, this deepest valley like the psalmist is. In thinking about this, I would argue that Psalm 88 has been given to us in order to express this great reality to the Christian life. It is not all a bed of roses. We have a hope that we look forward to, but this life is not all a bed of roses. Because as we mentioned, sin weaves its way through everything that we do, not just our sin, but the sin of the world creates misery for all of us. But I want to look this evening at those great truths that we can gain from this song. We'll look at it in a number of parts. And structurally, let me just mention The psalm opens in verses 1 and 2, showing us an unanswered prayer. I'm sure you noticed that right off the bat. And in verses 3 through 9, if you still have your Bibles open, the psalmist actually puts the blame for his troubles on God, okay? I don't know if you noticed that, but you should. The psalmist puts the blame for his troubles on God. Then in verses 10 through 12, the psalmist raises an argument with God, okay? It's an important argument with God that that teaches us something about both the finality of death and also the hope of resurrection. And then finally, in verses 13 to 18, we see that this prayer of the psalmist remains unanswered. In essence, the psalm goes from point A to point A, not point A to point B, which in and of itself has a message for us. So let me walk quickly through the psalm and immediately mention a couple of things. First, the points of hope that can be drawn from the psalm. Second, some other scriptural truths which can inform our response to God in times of deep trouble. In verses 1 and 2, the psalmist basically cries out, Lord, please hear me. Just hear me. The psalmist is saying, I have been pleading for your help day after day, but it's like you haven't even heard me. He's lifted up a petition. He's lifted up a prayer. He's lifted up a request for help, but that has gone unheard. Or uh, perhaps an even worse scenario, God is ignoring it, right? Now, what do we learn from that? We learn that sometimes even strong believers feel as though their cries to help up to God have gone unheard. And that means that in those circumstances, we need to be careful not to be like Job's counselors who told Job that, you know what, if you hadn't sinned or if you repented a little bit harder or just trust God a little bit more, then then everything would get back to the way that they were. That, brothers and sisters, is a false promise. No, there are seasons when even strong believers feel as though their prayers have gone unheard. And thankfully, this psalm reminds us of that. We are not alone, even those of us who are not as strong of believers, right? 
And you know, if that were not the case, then we really would have reason to despair. Here's a believer, and if you want to know who that was, it's not really somebody that's terribly significant in the Bible. His name is He-Man the Ezraite, which uh, might make for a fun song just in and of itself. But um, he is a, a strong believer. He was actually a worship leader in the temple. He's a strong believer, but you know, right now, even this strong believer has this sense that God is, is not hearing him. And that said, we know from Job and from Habakkuk, which we studied a few weeks ago, that, that you know, in, sometimes in those situations, if we can step back, ultimately, there is a bigger picture than, than we can even perceive, right? So we know that there's a bigger picture. And sometimes we gain some understanding of that, but, you know, the fact is, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't, and that's just life. The second thing I want you to notice in verses three to nine is where the psalmist basically said, Lord, I have one foot in the grave and it seems as though you're pushing me in. Not only are you not hearing my prayer, but I'm in big trouble. I'm on a cliff here and I can feel your hands pushing me over. And in this, we know that the psalmist understands and has the knowledge that God is sovereign, that God is in control. And because the psalmist will not let go of that doctrine of God's sovereignty, uh, we have to have some sympathy for him, right? We have to have some sympathy for him because that is absolutely true. But again, as we pull back the curtain and look at the bigger picture, we also need to appreciate the patience and the kindness of God in listening to the psalmist even speak to him this way. <clears throat> I mean, this is a human being talking to Almighty God and blaming Almighty God for his troubles. This is not a happy camper. And yet God does not smite him with lightning. God, whether the psalmist feels it or not, hears the psalmist's petitions. And in his generous grace, allows the psalmist to spout off the way that he does. And I don't know if you've been there. I have at different times. Those times when I cry out to God and say, Lord, you just don't understand how it is with me. You don't understand how important this is to me. You don't understand why you need to answer this prayer for me. That's our feelings talking. That's my feelings talking, of course. And we know, at least intellectual, don't, intellectually, don't we, that the truth is actually the other way around that we don't understand the ways of God. It's not that God doesn't understand our ways. And so often we don't have a, a good, healthy appreciation for just all that the Father, God the Father, has done for us and we'll never know. As a matter of fact, I think that we'll probably be spending eternity, eternity plumbing the depths of what the Father has done for us and has paid for us. And, and I don't know that we're ever going to truly understand. But the second point I wanted to make is the kindness. The kindness showed by God to be so patient with this seemingly desolate believer. The third thing I mentioned was that clever argument in verses 10 to 12. 
This is an argument that the psalmist makes why, why God really needs to hear his prayer. And here's the argument. If you have your Bibles turned open, it's verses 10 to 12. But, but just in summary, the argument that the psalmist makes is that, you know, God, hey, I want to praise you, but I can't do that if I'm dead. I cannot praise you from the grave. I cannot witness to your wonders. I cannot tell people about your righteousness. I can't tell about your justice and your faithfulness and your mercy if I am dead. So please help me answer my prayer. And so this is the psalmist kind of wheeling and dealing. God, you do this for me and I will do this for you. I desire to do this for you. Well, I think that there's actually a lot to learn from the psalmist's statements here. For one thing, I think the psalmist deserves a bit of a pat on the back. I mean, after all, he has not forgotten the chief end of man. The, psalm, the psalmist has not forgotten the true purpose of life, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, because that's his argument. That's what I want to do. God, enable me to do that. Enable me to do what you made me to do. But you know, ironically, when you think about it, when you think about that argument, find it interesting that God will do and has done precisely what the psalmist thinks that is impossible. Let me explain. The psalmist says, Lord, will you perform wonders for the dead? From other parts of scripture, we know that the Lord answers, as a matter of fact, yes, I will. The psalmist says, will the departed spirits rise and praise you? And the Lord answers, as a matter of fact, yes, they will. The psalmist says, will your steadfast love be declared in the grave? And the Lord answers, yes, it will, in the grave of my son, Jesus Christ. The psalmist says, will your faithfulness be shown in the abyss and the depths of hell? And the Lord answers, yes, it will. My son will endure it for you. The psalmist writes, will your wonders be made known in the darkness? And the Lord answers, oh, yes, they will in the deepest depths of hell. The psalmist writes, will your righteousness be known in the land of forgetfulness? And the Lord answers, oh, yes, it will. You see, the the finality with which the psalmist views death serves to beautifully highlight our Christian hope of resurrection. And that too is important for us to remember. This life is not all there is. Because ultimately our hope is that when we die, our souls will immediately go and be present with the Lord. Our hope is that one day our bodies will be raised from the dead and the totality of us, body and soul, will live and praise and worship God for his righteousness, faithfulness, justice, and mercy forever. And the very lack of that full understanding of the truth by this Old Testament believer highlights the truth for us as New Testament believers. But then we get to verses 13 to 18, and there is still no answers. Now, we found some grace in this text already, but we had to work pretty hard for it. 
We had to go to different parts of scripture. We had to um, draw on our knowledge of, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. We get to verses 13 to 18, and there is still no answer for the psalmist. Just like in this life, sometimes answers are not forthcoming for us. The psalmist cries out once again, I am burdened. I am burdened by you, God, but I am still waiting for your help. And so in this psalm, which ends with the statement, the darkness is my closest friend, what grace notes, what further grace notes could we possibly draw out to be encouraged by? Well, there are a few. The first and most important point of hope in this psalm is found in the first verse. What does the psalmist call God? He says, O Lord, God of my salvation. The psalmist is acknowledging by the very name that he uses to title God that our God is our only help and our God is our only hope, the God of my salvation. God is our only help. God is our only hope. And that is one thing that can never be taken away from a believer. No matter what else is taken away from a believer in this life, the help and hope of God can never be taken away. And that is so important for us to remember. Everything else can be lost in this world, but not that. The second point of hope can be seen in the psalmist's argument, that strange argument in verses 10 to 12, how the Lord needed to hear him because he could not praise God from the grave. Even in that argument, what do we see? We see the continuing desire of the psalmist to praise God. I mean, have you ever met somebody that has simply been made bitter by all the troubles that they've had in life? They become bitter, they become cynical, they have no hope, they're people kind of of despair, and it sort of just hits you, hits you in the face when you encounter people like that and, and talk to people like that. Well, despite all that he has been through, the author of Psalm 88 is not there. He still desires to praise God, and that in and of itself is a great blessing and a great indicator that God is indeed there and God is indeed listening. Even if he is having a hard time doing it, the psalmist wants to get there. Third, I want you to notice that even though there is no answer to this prayer, the psalmist is still praying, okay? So what's the message for us? Don't, don't stop praying. Don't cut off that lifeline to your relationship with God. But you know, the most significant grace note from this psalm, and I didn't even come across this until Friday, the most significant grace note that should encourage us requires a bit of shift in perspective. And it deserves a little bit of explanation. Just give me a couple minutes to finish up. But at least some scholars, biblical scholars throughout history have picked up on the fact that, that every single one of the 150 Psalms in the Bible can be put on the lips of Jesus Christ and make perfect sense. Some have even called the Psalms the songbook of Jesus. 
And Psalm 88, I was interested to learn, has been incorporated into the Good Friday liturgy in many Christian traditions. Psalm 88 contains words that resonate perfectly with Jesus' suffering on the cross when he took the full wrath of God upon the sins of humanity, when he was cut off from God the Father completely. If you read this psalm as coming from the lips of Jesus, how significant, how much more powerful would we understand the sacrifice that Christ made so that we could be saved? Understood this way, we can clearly see that though we feel a measure of the the suffering and despair described in this psalm, at times and, and sometimes through entire seasons of our lives, that Jesus Christ, as our representative, has experienced the same things, but to the nth degree the wrath of God on all the sin of humanity poured out on Jesus Christ, his son, one man, so that we can experience salvation and joy for all eternity. In the meantime, we can know that even in the darkest hours of our lives, it is not the darkness, but Jesus who is our closest friend. Amen. Let's pray.